these days I'm mostly asking myself two main questions and one of them is focused on augmenting the human body, redefining disability and disease and what does it mean to be human, what does it mean to have an extension of your body as a machine and how comfortable can you be and beyond that what happens when you connect those different machines, those different bionic elements such that they can communicate with each other, such that they can communicate with your body and have a closed loop input output um, between the machine and your body. And the second question really is about how can you use technology and innovation to, as a national development strategy, such that it's not just a one-off experimental thing here and there, let's put laptops in here, let's set up and make a space over there, um, and let's take maybe the Silicon Valley model and drop it off in Sierra Leone. But how do you answer the question if I gave you $50 billion and I said, how could you use this through technology and innovation or whatever else to change a country towards prosperity, towards good governance, towards independence? How does that happen? And to start with maybe the question of connecting the human body to machines comfortably, my research background is focused on using multi-material 3D printing, kind of based on the way the human body is. The human body itself is multi-material and the impedance varies um, at each location. But the mechanical interfaces that connect our body usually don't vary much at all. Uh, it's this question of mass customization of um, devices that we interact with. So if you go to the eyeglass store, you take an eyeglass frame, it is one impedance. It, is, it doesn't matter that your body and your face has different impedances around your ear. And, but you, you deal with it because this is what you have. Why worry about something that... Why make a force about it? But the point is we have technological advances today that you should be comfortable whenever you have an interface. So a knee brace should be made for you, should be comfortable. Um, your ski boot should be comfortable. But more importantly, if you're an amputee, if you're somebody who does not have a limb and you are using the prosthetic interface, then your comfort and your livelihood um, are very intertwined. And so, Actually, many people say that 100%, nearly 100% of amputees experience lots of pain um, within their prosthetic sockets. And the reason is because the way the socket is done is very crude, it's artisan. So as an amputee, I go to you, the prosthetist, and you take my limb and you make a cast and have a positive mold of my limb and you push on my limb and say, how does that feel? Is that bone, this bone? You say, yeah, yeah, that's very uncomfortable. And then you add the material so that there's a void because the interface that you're going to wrap around my body is made out of carbon fiber which is super hard and it's going to have a lot of pressure on your body and so if you your body changes which everybody does um, then you have high pressures over places where you don't want those pressures and you end up having blisters and pressure sores and an amputee's livelihood being impacted um, it's really, here's an analogy, I suppose. Uh, it's if I gave you a pair of shoes that were $600 
but they were maybe half size, two sizes, one size too small for you, you will not use it. You'd rather go barefoot. But if I give you a $10 pair of shoes that was comfortable your size, you'll use that, right? So most amputees, especially those in the developing world, even though they're given free prosthesis, choose not to wear their prosthetic devices because it's uncomfortable. And what I'm trying to think about is how do you capture the body's shape? How do you capture the body's impedance and rub and, and have a predictive model such that you can use that digital data, which we can get from MRI and from a bunch of different digital uh, scanning devices, and then build a robust model such that if I know that if I push on your body at that location in my model, one with, with some force, the behavior of the model will be exactly what will happen in the real life. And then if you use those two sets of information, could you develop a multi-material interface to achieve pressures that will give you um, pressures optimized for comfort, such that you don't want high pressures over the parts of the body where you don't want them to be. Um, and I think the biggest challenge to that really has been that the different stages in this process um, are led by different leaders in the industry. So to get a good anatomical data, you need MRI. And that's a different data set. And then to do soft tissue modeling, you need a completely different software that's going to segment all your anatomy and, and, uh, and then you develop a model from that. And to design uh, a model of the interface, you need a completely different design tool. And then to manufacture it, these days you can use a multi-material polyjet uh, 3D printing, right? Those are very different tools that are being used. And the question is, could we really be able to merge all of those such that um, we can achieve a level of communication between the different software tools such that it's easy for you anywhere in the world to walk into a medical facility, get imaged, and get a very a uh, comfortable interface 20 minutes, 30 minutes later, and you're out. And so next time you actually do good to get your eyeglasses frames, you walk in, there's a scanner that goes all across your face, and I'm able to map, maybe, it could be an MRI, and I'm able to segment it automatically, and it tells me exactly what your frame should look like, such that if you lay down somewhere, you're not, there's not pain on, on, your, on your face, or there's not like some scar on your nose and then you can walk out with your eyeglass frame for you right there, right? I think there needs to, to, to answer this question, to be able to achieve this future, we need a lot of um, effort and a lot of multidisciplinary leaders coming together and deciding to say, you know, it's time to, to work together to achieve this new, uh, interaction with machines for, for the comforts of the human race. And in terms of using, so right now, if you go to Silicon Valley, there's lots of money being, there's high risk. So people spend a lot of money for some product. And in Boston, at MIT, for example, is where, where I'm based, 
it's not uncommon for people to think that technology will solve every problem. And when I go to Sierra Leone, where I come from, people in Sierra Leone are expecting either the government or some external actor to come and solve their problems. And it's not that external actor. It could be big government, it could be an NGO, or it could be technology. But when you actually think about it, the obviously a lot of people say the technology in itself is, not, it's, is never good, right? The technology cannot be used to solve a problem. The question is how, what are the set of things that you need to have in a culture, in any setting, such that if you bring a technology there, or better yet, if they create their own technology, it can be used for prosperity, and it can be used for development, it can be used to create jobs, whatever it is that you want to think about. And right now, everybody talks about challenges, innovation challenges. The US government spends a lot of money doing challenges, and actually a lot of the innovations that have happened, like going to space, uh, the satellites, um, weather, whatever it is, like the big picture problems where government uh, challenges that was opened out to the public, right? Um, so the government does play a big role into that. But then at the end of the day, you need the private sector to step in and, and make advances, right? But that doesn't necessarily happen in a place like Sierra Leone. Um, those two, they, they are not connected right now. And so the challenges by itself need a broader ecosystem, need a broader support from the government, need a broader support from rule of law, you will argue, um, need a broader freedom to, to, to pursue what you want to do. So challenges are good, innovation competitions are great, but they are not enough. And then you have another school of thought who says, we need to create environments, we need to create spaces. But then, a space, so for example, one of the, the students I worked with, one of the young mentees I have from Sierra Leone, he created his own batteries and his own generator and an FM radio station to bring information to, to people in Sierra Leone. And he's not very good at school anyway, but he's this great creative innovator who uses recycled pot from trash to, to, to make these products. And so it's easy to say, let's make a space for him. Let's create a space, which is happening now because the government stepped into it and they want to build a lab for him. Now, these environments that we are creating should not just be places where people make physical things. It should be about making the mind. It should, because at the end of the day, a great battery is not just, does not have hands touching it. It's usually chemicals in, batteries out. But a great mind that can create garbage, that can use garbage to create batteries, is a mind that can make and bring prosperity and independence to a country. So to focus on just a space is, is absolutely um, just the beginning. It's just the tip of the iceberg. Right. There, there, is, there is a lot more that has to happen such that the people who go into those spaces, the young people who are there to make physical things, are also getting the transformational learning. They are also, it's creative thinking. They are being free to think about an idea and solve those ideas. 
And other people argue that it's about scaling products, right? That sure, with the technology and solutions that we have today, we only need to scale them and, and we will we'll solve the world's problems. Clearly, those people are within, uh, are within their own worlds, right? Because there are so many other different platforms, there's so many other different resources that need to happen to be able to effectively scale a prototype, a solution, especially in communities like Sierra Leone. So these are three examples of things that people can do and that people typically propose as a way of using technology to solve um, global problems, to bring prosperity. And the people in these worlds usually super believe in what they want, right? It's about makerspaces. Let's just do makerspaces and hackerspaces and this is all we need to solve global uh, problems. No, no, it's about the innovation challenges. No, no, it's about scaling these ideas and connecting all of these spaces. And, and whatever else. No, it's about taking Silicon Valley and moving it to Freetown. And these will always fail. They will always fail. And I think I fear and worry that it will be this new age of technological colonization in some way where it is not focused on the people who are creating um, the technology, where it's not about the joy you get from making. The thing, as an in inventor, as an innovator, you, you think about the problem, you understand the problem, and you have a very... Um, you go through this process of coming up with a plan to solve such a problem. There's highs and there's lows, and there's collaborating, asking for help. And at the end of the day, if you're successful uh, after, I don't know, 20 failures, there's the joy, right, for solving a specific problem. That whole process cannot just be shipped down from Boston to, to Freetown. It has to be experienced. And you have to experience it once, and then you experience it twice, and you experience it three times, and more to be successful innovators that are going to solve uh, major problems within your country. And so it is about thinking around and beyond our individual objectives and goals and areas of specialization to say the real way to move a country towards prosperity, not just one community, will be inclusive, will be broader than one specific area will be bigger than government and private sector. And this whole new public-private sector partnerships that exist have not really, in many ways, delivered what everybody thought that they would deliver. And I don't know, for me, I think it's about focusing on the young people. It's about, it's about teaching, it's about making new minds, it's about teaching integrity and empathy. It's about having these young people go through these transformational changes that are required to make them innovators. Almost every innovator I've met made something when they were young. And to just assume that we can go to a community and say, all right, now you 30-year-old man or woman who has not made anything in your life before, now you be an innovator, it's almost callous. It's, it's, it's very naive. It's, because, because the skill set that we need as innovators, as entrepreneurs, are things that we've grown with. These are 
processes. It's a way of doing. It's, it's a way of daring yourself and, and other people around you to say, I understand that problem. I don't know how to get there, but I am going to try and make this, uh, this prototype. I'm going to try. And it's probably not going to work, but I'm going to learn something from it. So it is making to learn, really, and learning from making, which is something that is missing from, from the approaches that we've currently been exposed to and that we want to just pick up and bring to poor or less economically developed countries. I have worked with Neil Gershenfeld in the Fab Labs, right? And, and I, there is a value for that. There is the value to um, have digital fabrication and tools available such that anybody can make almost anything if you want to do it. But again, like I said, and if you have good processes to teach these new concepts to people, it is a great initiative and it's obviously produced good results in, in Kenya, the one in uh, Shoshengevi in, in South Africa and, and, and the other ones in, uh, in Ghana. But like I said, a space is only important as the products that come out of it. It is not just about the physical things that can be made, but rather thinking about the products that you will make to solve a specific challenge in your community. And to, and I'm not saying that this is what they focus on, but to just make a product for myself that, I don't know, that I could make a, a new kind of comb. I could fabricate a comb such that I can brush my hair with it very well. Sure, maybe it, it solves a very specific problem for myself. But to achieve the level of prosperity and, and development that we want, it's got to be beyond ourselves and it's got to be looking into the community and solving very big challenges and very big problems. That does not come from having tools available. The tools are essential when you can use them, but a bigger, bigger picture is the vision and, and the mind and the thinking that I, I know, I understand this problem. I, I can speak to all these experts. I can go and collaborate and ask the user of this solution that I'm going to have. This is the service that needs to, to be executed. This is the material, local material that I can access. It might not have to be electronics. It might not have to be technology, but it might just have to be having, putting sticks together. I don't know, tying those sticks together to do a very specific thing. It is that that we need to teach people in addition to having these, these, these spaces. As you observed, we're not, it's not saying that the innovation prizes, are, are, it's not a way to go because clearly they are useful. And it's also not saying that having a digital lab where you can make almost anything you want is not the way to go, though that is also absolutely necessary. But at the end of the day, when you really think about it, if you, if you meet a young person, I'll tell you a story. I grew up in Sierra Leone and my three best friends and I um, studied together through our high school exams. And we got the best results um, in the country. Like, um, and I left, I came to the US um, for, for college. They went to college in Sierra Leone. They, one of them did civil engineering, the other one did mechanical engineering, and the other one did electrical engineering. They got the best results in their department. Hands down, they were one to three in the whole university. 
And they all ended up going to get master's degrees as well. One of them now has a master's degree in mining engineering, the other one in civil engineering, the other one in electrical engineering from international institutions. And we'll meet and hang out for drinks. And we can talk about Sierra Leone's problems all day. The problems are there, absolutely in your face, and you can complain about governments. But the minute I say, all right, so here's what we're going to do. How do we solve this problem? Here we have some of the smartest engineers in Sierra Leone, very highly academically qualified. Isn't the obvious thing that we come together to solve some of these problems? One place is that let's have a, a problem-solving uh, a session. Let's just, let's just think about solutions. The composition dies. It's really sad because you see these smart people and they are my best friends but we cannot think about solutions at all but rather the composition ends by somebody saying oh the government will do it the government should be doing it why is the government not solving the problem that's why they're there or say David oh I think it's because you 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 went abroad that's why you're thinking this way it's really sad to see that, well, I guess it's obvious that, that, uh, that, that high academics is not necessarily uh, equal to, I want to be an individual, I want to solve. Which brings us back to my original point that we need people to learn the process. You do not just say, here's a competition, here's a, a, a a set of tools that you can use, but we need to actively guide young people to be problem solvers. Otherwise, we'll continue to have all these smart PhD people who, who, who don't know how to solve any problem. To be honest, all the ministers in Sierra Leone, probably all of them have PhDs, and many of them probably went abroad to study for these. Sierra Leone is a wealthy country. We have any mineral, you, almost any mineral you want. We have maybe the third largest deposit of iron ore or something that gets shipped to China on a daily basis. We have diamond, which led to the problems with our wall. We have gold, we have water, we have arable land. We have smart, intelligent people. They all have PhDs. But what do we make? It's, it's, it's almost sad to think that you can have all of these different elements. You have the water, you have the sun, you have the land, you have the minerals. And what we don't have is the mind to put all of those things together. I, I'm sorry to say, it's different from being academically smart. But we are not putting those things together. And how do you do that? I don't know. I think the cost of 3D printers are going down. We will see a lot more multi-material 3D printing. The cost of MRI will probably go down. There will be new imaging technologies. But actually, there's somebody in my research group who is making um, a tool that can measure the impedance of your body and capture shape at the same time. Absolutely cheap. And you have 
uh, a force, so you have a force and displacement sensor, and you have all these models, and you can easily, you, you, you are checking the location. You can be able to measure the impedance at each location, because this is really what, all what you want. I don't really care. When I do a segmentation of your body, and I try to understand where all the muscles are, and where all the bones are, and where the fat and skin is, and I build up a model, what I really want to know, the one simple thing is what's the impedance of that location. And if I can build a machine that just gives me an impedance and shape, then I'm done. Then I don't need the expensive MRI. Right? So that's where innovation comes in. And so once I'm able to get shape and impedance of this location accurately, then I can use that information to develop an interface using very free, open um, software in which you can do CAD. And then you can do this new, you can create a mold if you want. You can create a mold from the $1,000 3D printer and then figure out ways in which you can cast multi-material um, products, right? That, 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 that you want to have. But I think it's absolutely important to, for amputees to, to be able to be comfortable. I mean, we, we live in an age where these old, we, we have flying cars. Uh, and self-driving cars, but an amputee cannot be comfortable. They cannot wear a prosthetic socket that, that's not going to give them blisters and bruises. And, and if they go running for one day, they have to not maybe run the next day because they are in pain. It's, it's absurd to, to, to think about it. Um, and the thing is, we have developed... So here's actually a, big, a much bigger problem. Our human body, as we know it, is a system. What I do with my hands, my whole body knows what's going on when I, when I do that, right? It's a central control and it knows. Today we have a lot of bionics in our bodies. The pacemaker, artificial hearts. We have FDA-approved bionic eyes. We have FDA-approved bionic ankles, which my professor uses. We have bionic knees. If something goes wrong with a bionic knee, the bionic ankle doesn't know. Certainly, my whole body doesn't know. The people who are the architects of the bionic ankle have no idea what's going on with the bionic knee, or most certainly do not even know about the FDA-approved bionic eye and, and what, what, what architecture um, they used to create it. Our human body is coded by DNA. I think the bigger question for us and the people who are developing bionic technology is, are we going to move towards a place where the bionics in our body all can communicate? Or better yet, if we do not want the whole entire system to communicate, it's okay. Could we have uh, like a body area network, nodes such that the behavior of your bionic ankle and the behavior of your bionic knee are very well in sync with each other, right? The, behavior, the, the impedance, the torque that you're getting at the ankle should be determined by what's going on with your knee, right? And vice versa. So what does that look like when all of our bionic elements are talking? And at the bigger level, what does that look like when they can talk to our body and to our brain? Could 
the impedance for, say, a, a, a unilateral amputee. They have a biological ankle, they have a bionic ankle. Wouldn't it be crazy to think about an architecture where what I'm thinking is not only controlling my biological ankle, but it can also control my bionic ankle? And with the FDA-approved um, bionic eye, that, I, that the, the, the inputs that you're getting are controlling not just all of your bionic, not just your biological function, but also any other bionic element that's in your body, right? Uh, the artificial pancreas could talk to, I don't know, something, some other bionic element in your body that's necessary if you have a kidney transplant, if you, if you, if you have an artificial 3D printed kidney, which, which we have seen, there are 3D printed blood vessels that are there. If you do put a biobot in there, could you have it such that the biobot, if when it does exist, that's streaming your bloodstream, flowing in there could correspond with your, with your artificial um, bionic uh, pancreas if, if sugar levels are high or low and be able to activate that. It's, it, this is way forward thinking that has to start happening now, right? But, it, but it's really exciting. I mean, yeah. part, part, part of actually the, the, the reason why, why I got into all of this, uh, trying to understand how you can map bionics and have the bionics communicate with each other. It has its challenges, and we'll talk about that soon, and that's security, for example. But once you can have all of these bionics, you can think, I don't know, in the future, I play soccer, I play football, and then I was hurt, and I was limping one day, and, um, and my friend is like, oh, my friend knows that I develop prosthesis. He's like, you should just make yourself a leg. And I was like, actually, it's not that funny. Because if, if my legs are bionic and I could control them and I can tune them, then I wouldn't be breaking them all the time. But when, when I, the reason why I wouldn't do that right now is because I know the prosthetic sockets suck, which is what I'm working on. Um, and there will be a point in time, I don't know, when I'm older, when I want to achieve something else, where I would choose to get bionic parts in my body, right? Other people don't choose right now. They get given an artificial heart. They get given a bionic eye. Um, but to reach at the point where we can choose to, to augment our body, which means we have to redefine what it means to be human, and we have to redefine what it means to be uh, disabled. We have to define what, what disease and illness means. These are all questions that are very open that, that, that the advances in technology will, um, will force us to have. But I think it's, we, we should have them now as we're doing the development. So there have been improvements in, in uh, exoskeletons, right? So actually some people in my group have been doing research on how do you have running exoskeletons. But again, it brings us to my point, original point. The biggest problems with exoskeletons is how you attach them to the body. They're not comfortable. The body is optimized to reduce metabolic cost um, when you do a certain function. And adding mass to the body requires energy. And if you are going to change the way you walk because something is attached to your body, it requires a lot more energy. And that counters the effect of the, of the exoskeleton, which is supposed to make you do something better, assuming you, you have regular um, normal function and you want to optimize your function. And so the, 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 the question of attaching the body to machines comfortably, actually, is a very fundamental one to the advances that we will make um, in technology. But I think we're not, 
we're not that far away at all. I think it's happening more and more where people choose to have bionic units um, added to our system, right? Cochlear implants. It's, it, in the past, maybe it used to be strange to have people have air implants uh, th that's standard today, that is bionic. Uh, it's given, it's a, it's a mechanical made thing that is supposed to be mimicking, if not at some point, giving as much better function than our biological um, units, right, provide today. And I think once we reach that point and we can safely put bionics into our bodies to achieve better, equal or better than what our regular biological um, parts do, um, then this conversation about having all of them be connected will become relevant, right? That's when people, and, and what I fear, and I'm not sure, um, I, I'm not sure about whether, how much money it will cost to, after we've developed all of these areas differently in different silos and we're at the point, be like, oh shoot, we gotta come back all this way to be able to, to have them be connected. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, but again, there is the, the a friend of mine was telling me recently the, the problem of standardization is you 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 want to make advances in the different areas before you can standardize across. Right. So you want to have long T's before you can go broader in some ways. But you never know which point, um, which point like w w will it be limiting. Right. But with regards to the security question that I had raised. I think somebody you can control in the past, you could control people's hat, uh, their pacemakers, which is absolutely terrible to think about my pacemaker being controlled by somebody else. But then as, as we talk about different bionics communicating with each other, as we talk about my bionic knee communicating with my bionic ankle, if I have an artificial hip communicating, has some sensor that's communicating with my ankle, information is being transmitted. And uh, there can be an interference. And somebody could have access to that information that is not you. And so then the big question then becomes, which is a completely new area of research, because we've not, that, that will happen because of this, is what's the security of uh, body area networks of bionics? What's the information um, packets that need to be sent, that is transmitted between different bionics to achieve a very stable security such that I know that as an amputee, somebody's not gonna control my knee and ankle to, to make me move involuntarily and do and, and, and hurt me, right? Um, and what does that look like if somebody can communicate with my, um, with my, um, with my pancreas uh, or with my implanted, with my kidney, if, 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 if I'm getting information to that. So I'm from Sierra Leone, and, and I remember vividly, and actually it, it ties both of my big questions together. I remember when I left Sierra Leone, I went to Norway for two years. I attended the Red Cross Nordic United World College, which is, which is a high school that brings together 100, 200 uh, young people from all over the world to go to school for international understanding and world peace. Right? There are 12 of them around the world. And, and I had learned that 
I, I got into Harvard, right? So what did I do? The very first day that I, I got into Harvard was I searched for um, technology entrepreneurship Harvard. And it so happened that there was a center called Technology and Entrepreneurship Center at Harvard. And, and this professor, um, uh, my, my, this lecturer, who's, who became my very, very good friend and mentor, Paul Bottino, his name and email and phone number was there. So I picked up a call. I said, hey, can I speak to Paul, please? And he said, it's Paul speaking. And we ended up speaking for 40 minutes. And the topic of that conversation was an observation I had made. A lot of amputees in Sierra Leone were sitting on the street begging. And then I went to my dad's office. My dad works for UNICEF and we're hanging out with his friends. And then I said, why are all the amputees on the street begging? I didn't they have free, free prosthesis? And they, somebody in the audience said, well, obviously, they all like to beg. I mean, they, they, they give them free products and they go and sit by the street because they don't want to do anything for themselves. And this was very, obviously, was very, not a satisfying answer. But it was also very disheartening to hear that this, this was what they thought about the amputee. So I went to, to, the, to this camp um, just in Freetown. And I met with the director of, the, of the, the center where they were making the prosthetic devices. And I went to uh, and saw the tools that they used to make the prosthesis. And I spoke with a bunch of amputees. And it became very clear that the reason why they don't use their prosthesis was because it was uncomfortable. It was free, but it was uncomfortable and gave them pressure sores and blisters. And obviously, nobody in their right senses will use such a prosthesis. There are two problems here. One, they're uncomfortable and cannot have a normal life, even though the product has been given to them for free. There are these people who are leading the country who think, yeah, I mean, we gave them for free. They should be able to use it. They're not trying to help themselves. The science of improving how you connect the body to machines needs to be improved. And it does not only need to be improved in, in Boston, it needs to be improved globally. It so turns out that, the, the connect, that connecting the body to machines is still crude, whether you're in Boston or Bombay or Freetown. So that's a global problem. And it was an obvious one to try to start solving and thinking about. But then there's the bigger picture of, one, these people who are highly academic are clearly not solving the problems that are leading to the challenges that's keeping this, amp this amputee in the street. They do not understand those problems. All they talk about is PhDs and what's in the news, right? And, and books and education and learning uh, these formulas that, and, and hence the conversation I have with them is, David, how is school? David, how is uh, your PhD? How's your master's, right? Clearly, the reason why this person, this amputee, who is not doing anything with their life, is still sitting down on the street begging, is because probably they did, they did not make something when they're young. They are not entrepreneurial enough. They are not using the technology that's available, readily available, 
to them, to take advantage of the opportunities that are so readily available to them as well, to lead prosperous lives. I love making, I love being in, being solving these problems, but I think beyond me, beyond our individual silos, to achieve prosperity and development in a place like Sierra Leone that does not involve giving free devices to victims, which leads to low self-efficacy and dependence on external actors, we need to make new minds. And that involves giving young people the platform to innovate, to learn from making, and to make, to learn, and to solve very tangible problems within their communities. So it seemed like those two things were connected. And I still don't know how to solve them at all. I mean, it's not like I know how to solve uh, this idea of connecting the body to machines. That's why I'm doing a PhD in it. And, and at the end of it, I wouldn't know how to do it, but it's, it's very relevant. Um, and then for myself, selfishly, I just like to think about what will happen when I'm older and I need bionic units. I want all my bionics to be talking to my body and, and so that I can be Superman, right? I, my professor is a double amputee and, uh, and I work with him very closely. And the products I design, he tests out. He actually uses some of my products. And it's, it's, it's wonderful to see him describe a product I make as it's like walking on pillows. It's, 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 like, it's great, especially when you know that globally here that the um, amputees are in a lot of pain and we ourselves don't know how to comfortably connect our bodies to machines in a repeatable way. And as we solve those problems, what does it mean to say, I want to see a prosperous Sierra Leone? What is the nervous system of a country like Sierra Leone that has a lot of the resources necessary for development, for economic development, for job creation, for lowering poverty, any of these things that they use at the UN as, uh, as jargons. What does it mean to enable a generation that can solve those problems and move towards actual global development and avoid all the rhetoric that goes on with Vision 2025 or Vision 2030.